0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Thank you for joining me for another episode of One Mike Night, the podcast that brings you stories of artists and people on a personal journey, helping to guide, answer questions, and motivate you in the business. My name is Marcos Luis. And today, my guest is incredible. He is a filmmaker, a writer, a producer. He's the dean, uh, associate professor, excuse me, of the University of Texas at Austin, and he is an activist. I'm so happy to have him here on the podcast. Please welcome Yake Smith to the show. What's up, Yake?
1: Hey, brother. How you doing? Nice to to be here. Thanks for the invite.
0: Good. Thank you. Listen, man, I have questions. First of all,
1: (laughs) I might have answers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who is Yake Smith?
1: All right. First, you you're saying yakay is yaki? Yaki. My my bad.
0: Yeah, I'm go. so sorry. It's
1: all good. It's all good. Uh, everybody does that, you know. Um, who am I, man? I'm. Um, you kind of you kind of describe me as who I am. You know, I'm a I'm an activist first. Um, one, one who believes in the power um, of stories and their ability to change the world. Mm. Uh, one who believes that. Uh, filmmaking, and I I say specifically filmmaking, but I just mean art in general, Um, but it is not really meant um, to be done just for the sake of doing it, right? That there should be not only a catharsis for the maker or the creator of that art, but then that sort of cathartic experience that the maker has when that work is exhibited, when it's screened in a film festival, when it's a painting hanging on a wall, whatever it may be, that that the viewer should also have some kind of sort of cathartic experience. And then an experience that really begins to change uh, certain narratives, right? Because I think a lot of times what we forget is that film, especially when it comes to Black people, film has been used as a weapon against us. And, and all art really has been used as a weapon against us, right? Mm. Um, Once it it sort of got into the hands of, you know, colonizers and and people with a sort of colonialist mindset, they understood the power of the image um, to continue to um, imprison Black folks um, uh, and and damage our reputation and really sort of dehumanize us. And so for me, I believe that a good piece of art begins to rewrite that narrative, right? Uh, And it begins to make us see Ourselves in a different way, but it also allows other people um, who don't know us, or even for us, experiences that we have not had. It allows us to see into um, other people in a way that we probably would not be able to see into them had it not been for that piece of art that that we are actually um, engaging with. Um, I, I'm also, you know, I'm a professor, you know, and mm-hmm. and and I say that not as a sort of vocation, but I think that I have always been sort of teaching and guiding people, right, Um, and not really sort of knowing that, not understanding that every time somebody called me um, into the editing room with them, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning when I'm in my dorm room sleeping and they called me because they didn't know how to do something, I was teaching them, I was helping them, I was guiding them, and that's sort of what I do anyway. And again, that becomes an extension of the activist work and the storytelling work because they all sort of exist at an intersection and they all are in constant conversation with each other. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm a father, right? Uh, I'm a husband. Uh, and and I am, you know, again, someone who believes that in order for there to be meaningful change in the world, um, that we all must be willing to put ourselves on the line to see that change happen. Uh, that we can no longer afford Um, to sit idly by while things are happening to our people, while things are happening in the world that um, don't align with who we are, things that are happening in the world that um, ultimately will come around to haunt us. You know, I'm just thinking about all the racial, sort of this idea of a racial reckoning that's happening in the United States right now because of George Floyd. Um, and and also thinking about how, when that first happened, we were all like, yeah, right? Everybody was right. in it. And yeah. now, you know, a year and a half later, yeah, the trial is happening, but a lot of people have really forgotten. And I also wonder how many people are actually engaging. I'm not saying to watch the trial because I've not been watching it. That stuff's too traumatizing for us. Um, but but I do believe that, that there are those who were excited during that time who are no longer excited. And I say that to say that's because once we get past the excitement of seeing someone murdered we have to then get to a place where we're willing to dismantle the systems and structures that actually allow that to happen
0: absolutely do you think let me i'm, I'm going to stop you for one second but do you think that because of the george floyd uh thing that happened in the summer of 2020 and I, and i say i've said this on a couple of episodes you think it was because we had the pandemic at that time that things, you know, like people had more time on their hands to do that? Now people are struggling with, you know, the fact that the COVID is, you know, finally leaving and people are sending their attention other places, you know, financial, they got to get back to work. You know what I mean? Like, you're right. Having, Having something like that happen, but we also need to take action along with it. If you think that because the pandemic happened, that people were able to come out and do some stuff, do some work and some change started happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think because of the pandemic, right, we we saw those images over and over and over again, and there was no real escape from those images, right? right. Because we were at home. So even if you're at home working, you know, like I have been for the last year or so, you know, you, you, you sort of are always looking at Twitter, you're always like on Facebook, you're always looking at CNN.com and reading the BBC or whatever, and you're always just, just sort of, confronted with these images. And so I think when you see an execution like that, I think the human side of you sort of, it comes on, right? And that's what makes you take to the street because you cannot get away from it. You cannot go to the office, you cannot hide. You're not in bars with your coworkers, right? There's a, but my point in saying that is like, I would hope that when you finally were confronted with that, that you went beyond the sort of superficiality um, or I should say the superficial nature of sort of activating together, meaning that that was sort of like a knee-jerk reaction because of how graphic and horrible that was. But once we get past that, we got to go deeper. And regardless of whether or not we're back at work and, 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 you know, we're dealing with the pandemic and people got to just deal with themselves, we cannot separate the idea of that kind of death and that kind of systemic execution of black bodies, you can't separate that from your job. You can't separate that from the stuff you teach in your classroom. You can't separate that from the ways in which you deal with your um, your kids' teachers because in many ways, they're all like intricately connected. And I think to end it here, when we separate it, that's when no change really happens because we don't see the links between all of it.
0: Right. I mean, we, we don't necessarily have to end it here, but I do want to say, you know, what the point I was making with the pandemic was, you know, you have other people joining in with us. So then the cause becomes bigger, the support becomes bigger. And you know what I mean? And that's when the action takes place. Now people are, you know, our are, are white brothers and sisters and other people, you know, non-people of color are, are now doing whatever they do. They're not in on the fight with us as much as we are. We're still in the fight because we live it. We have to be Every in the fight
1: every day and and my comments my comments were really about them right because I think that's what you know and and even when you start to talk about privilege and I think that's something that I always talk to my white colleagues I'm like you don't understand that there's actually a privilege to be able to to um distance yourself from this thing right because we can't I don't have the the privilege of of whiteness where I can feel bad and give to the ACLU and give to the NAACP for like three weeks and be activated for two months and then like go back to business as usual. Because the moment that I try to go back to quote unquote business as usual, this thing slaps me in the face yet again. We have Absolutely. Dante Wright, literally we're in the middle of a trial for Absolutely. murder and somebody else is killed. You took the words right out of my mouth. And so that again, this is, we can't we can't separate these things. And it's, it's funny because like being, I'm an Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at UT. And oftentimes there, there, there's the it takes time mentality. Um And as much as I get that, my my response to that is always, how much time is it going to take? Because we've been fighting this for 400 years. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah like really, yeah. how much? How how many? How much more can I take? As James Baldwin said, you told my mom to wait. You told my aunt to wait. You told my uncles to wait. I right. can't keep waiting. Right. I can't look at my nephew in the face, my son in the face, and say well, you got to wait. Uh, your lifetime again and I can't sit back idly by where and watch these responses be as prescriptive as they are because you know there's a there has to be a book a rule book a blueprint somewhere because they're the it's the same exact response every time these things happen to us it's like literally they're having a conversation somewhere and saying this is how you should respond to police execution of black bodies this is how you should respond when you're dealing with racism at work This right it's all of that and they they know the responses but those responses actually don't create the systemic change that we need because if they did guess what we wouldn't keep dealing we, with this stuff we, over yeah the
0: exactly so where do we go what do we do that's that's the big question you know what i mean that is that's the question of the moment where do we go it's hard i mean but we I see the change we, happening slowly you know in, in different ways but you know i don't know if we need some sort of administration to then be the you know like a head of something that then designates this needs to cha- change this is going to happen this is going to happen this is going to happen but something definitely needs to happen
1: you you're right i mean cuz and it's it's interesting cuz like in my filmmaking the the one thing that i am always doing is i am looking through everything with an empathetic eye right i, I really i really want to look at even the the racist, right, the the sexual predator, right. I really want to get inside the mind and understand that kind of psyche because I do believe that no one is born an evil person. I don't think anybody is born racist. I don't think any of that is true. I actually think we are all programmed to quote unquote, stay in our place, whatever that place is. That's why it takes education and doing the hard work of learning and unlearning. A lot of the things that by the time you six or seven have been ingrained inside of you, right? And I say that to say that that's through the film, but when you get into the actual work, when you leave with that empathy as you should, we should always leave with empathy, but we should always understand something that changing hearts and minds of people do not change structures and systems. Those are two different things. And so, yes, I want to speak to your heart and your mind and your soul. And I will definitely, I've had very difficult conversations with people who have said very racist things and I've been patient with them. Because in my mind, I sort of understand, you just speaking some crap you don't even understand. However, on the flip side of that, the way that I really apply pressure is that I create a system and I mandate things that you must do. So for example, when I think of, you know, desegregation you know top, just even the bus for example
0: mm-hmm.
1: right changing the hearts and minds of the people that rode the bus means nothing right what do you have to do you have to create a law and once that law is created and now it is illegal for you to do that to me it's still going to be a struggle because again now i'm dealing with something that's been ingrained for ever and ever in people Absolutely. but that law actually helps to facilitate the change and then i can start talking in doing some of those other things, but we need more laws. And to your point, I would love to see a, and maybe it's in the white house or something, but I would love to see a task force on like anti-racism or something exactly. like that, yeah. right? Yeah. Where yeah. where we start making laws. Like if you just, I just was watching a video. If you white man harassed this young 14 year old boy because he's walking through your neighborhood and you stand it all in his face, asking him why, why is he there? Why is he doing that? You should be charged with something. right? And when I'm you surprised. start doing that, we will start seeing a lot of this stuff stop happening.
0: Absolutely, and that was exactly my point. That's exactly what I mean. Should we designate a task force to do that? And that's you know that's that's where the change comes through that action.
1: We need that. Yeah, man. We do, and that task force should be comprised of black folks, indigenous people, because they 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 are the first to be pillaged and 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 have their land taken from them up here in America. Uh, we should have women on that. We should have people that are not white identifying on this task force. They right. should be making the rules, and then they should take these things to the white identifying people who actually have the power to make the change.
0: Absolutely, the ones who are the victims of all these things happening.
1: Yeah, man, that's what yeah. I think. Patrice Culler says, you know, those who are closest to the pain need to be the one trying to make the change, and that's true. And it's I just, I, I just paraphrase that I think, but it's real. Right. Because you don't understand the pain if you haven't lived
0: it. Absolutely. I want to talk about one of your pieces, too, because, uh, dear bro. Where did that come from? Incredible. I had let me tell you, first, first of all, you sent it to me a while ago. I watched it a couple of times. Recently, I watched it again. Then I stopped watching it and I just listened to it. Incredible. Incredible. It hit so many different levels. For me, tell tell us a little bit about what it is and where it came from and what it means to you.
1: Yeah, man. So it's interesting that you say you 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 finally sort of watched it without watching. You just listened to it because it started as a point. That's what Mm, it was. Okay. Right. I never thought it was going to become a film. About it must have been in 2015 or 16, maybe 2014. I started doing this thing where it was called Yaqui's 28 Days of Reflection 21 Days of Reflection and every day I would post something about revolution right something about the pain um, of watching Black Death something about the ways in which I think we could sort of create again a blueprint for liberation you know and emancipation Mm. Um, some of them were videos right I had one um, called, I think it was called Make America Great Again. And it was sort of showing Trump. And I'll never forget, it was that moment in one of his rallies where he kicked that 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 young lady out, the black woman. Right. And he said, you know how she would have been dealt with 50 years ago, you know? There's stuff that he just said that people just kind of overlooked. Right, and it's right. like, this is why we see what we see now. But anyway, um, and I was like, man, this is crazy. And so again, I started writing these things. And so when George Floyd happened, actually, I was like, man, I have been wanting to turn this into something for the last year. I have been wanting to sort of create um some kind of visual piece. I thought it was gonna be like a short film, you know, inspired by it. Um, I thought it was gonna be animated. I actually said, okay, I'm gonna maybe create short animated vignettes and have the poem read over that. But when George Floyd happened and really inspired by like Arthur Jaffa's uh what is it, uh I forgot the name of the piece and it'll come to me in a minute. I think it's the, is it The Revolution is... um, Anyway, it'll come to me in a second, but inspired by what Arthur Jaffa did, um, I said, you know what I could do? I could just get actors to read this and then I can basically just get as much archival because the footage is there, right? It's all been told. Um, Love is the message and the message is death is the name of um, Arthur Jaffa's piece. And so sort of looking at that, and saying I could just use archival footage, I could use, again, contemporary and current news footage. um, I could use stuff that I find. I mean, I I dug everywhere. I was on IG, I was on Facebook, I was on Twitter. um, And I said, I wanna sort of create a visual representation of what it means to mourn the life of Black people who have been killed and also to humanize them because when people become a hashtag, don't get me wrong. I think those hashtags are important, but we forget th- this is somebody's like brother, right? right. This is somebody's yeah. daddy. Yeah. This is somebody's son, and they are dealing with this pain long after we after we say their name for a year. That mother is, has still lost her child, right? Right, still lost her baby. Um, that that son does still not son or daughter does still not have their father, and we'll have to to. to Um, grow up without that person in their life. And so not only did I want to sort of talk about the pain that I personally feel, but I also wanted to sort of give voice and visual representation to the pain that I think the family members feel. And I wanted to really sort of charge us all with taking action because ultimately just feeling pain and not doing anything about it means absolutely nothing. Mm. That pain must become again something that propels us into action. Absolutely. And propels us into continue not only saying their names as, as a name, but saying their names as a way to actually um enact real, real, real and affect real, real change in our right, country. Right. And so it came out of all of that. You know.
0: I like that. And I want to I want to backtrack to something you said. You know, we were talking about uh people, you know, the action that people take. And it's not just You know we can go out in the street we can protest or we can make laws but it's also it is inclusive of those people sitting behind the computer and donating money you know it's all that as as, you know together it's not you know it's a it's a whole fight together so we need that too so i i just want to clarify that too that's not what you're saying you're not saying don't you know don't do that but
1: no i'm saying it i think all of that is activism right Yeah. I really do. I think that, you know, because it, it, it's funny to get into the story about what activism is. And I have to re- remind myself this. I am an artist first. Right. I'm an activist and an artist. And it is through my art that I can fight.
0: Yes. Yes. It
1: is through my art that I can bring light. It is through my art that I can galvanize those people who are actually going to go out and fight in the streets. Right? Absolutely and, right. And and also, guess what? Yeah. I need somebody. I need some white ally who will never even make themselves known to give a million dollars to the cause. That's because right. that's how we fuel the cause. That's how we continue to be able to, to fight these things. Money makes the world go round and we know that. And that's I think right. it's the money and the people getting together and galvanizing and hitting the streets and the artists speaking loudly and the newscasters bringing light to these things as they're happening. and yep. And then honestly, us with our cell phones just recording some of these things that are happening, all of that together is what builds the movement. And that's all activism in my mind. Activism does not mean that you gotta go do a die-in in front of your Capitol, right. right? Right. You don't have to do that. We need that, but that you is not it. how, but that is not the only way to be an activist.
0: Right. Do you feel empowered as an independent filmmaker to do that kind of stuff, to, to create your own art and say, yeah, I wanna do it from this point to this point. This is my shit, yeah. this is my work, this is my work. Yeah. Yeah, man. Nobody can tell me anything differently.
1: Yeah, and and as long as we can do that, we should, but we also got to understand this, and this is where it becomes really difficult, and this is where as artists we become conflicted. The minute that somebody else starts (laughs) bankrolling, now you have to adhere to some of their rules. And that might mean that your voice, if you're not careful, your voice can be stolen from you yes. and that's why I think it's so important for us as Black artists that goes back to one of the first things I said there's a sacrifice that has to be made because I'm not going to just say yes to you because I'm excited that finally I'm going to be in the mainstream yet I'm doing a disservice to my people via art because guess what that art that film it's going to live forever mm-hmm. and I have to be very conscious of the image that I'm putting out and so yes right now I don't have nobody telling me anything. I can do what I want to do. you know. And look, I do know that there are certain compromises that have to be made when you start bringing in investors. I get that. Right. But there are certain things that I will not compromise. I would not compromise being unapologetic. I would not compromise that I'm an activist. I will not compromise the certain images of my people that I want to put out. I will not compromise telling the good, bad, and ugly about my people because sometimes we as Black people, even want to deal with this whole notion of respectability politics, right? And we want to operate in that and forget that. This whole notion of, oh, if you wear wearing a suit, they won't kill you. That's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. It absolutely is, yeah. They killed Malcolm X, they killed King. They all had on suits, Medgar Evers. Yeah. And then they just pepper sprayed somebody who literally was in a, a uniform. He's a, he's a lieutenant in the army. Right, yeah, yeah. So explain to me what that has to do with anything. And my point is, it's like, I want to tell all of those narratives because I believe that we must tell those narratives unapologetically and we must give voice to our people. We must give them their agency back. One of my favorite films is Boys in the Hood and it's my favorite film because of two things. One, he pulled no punches and he was telling a story that I understood intimately because I was living that. Mm. Right? Those are my god brothers. Yeah, yeah. That was me, I was watching that stuff out of my front window in the projects of San Antonio. Right. So I, I felt that. But I also love the fact that um, John Singleton, I'm sure there was some compromise that had to be made, but he kind of made a film the way he wanted to make the a film. The way he wanted to, yeah. Right, yeah. 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 He, he, he caught the shots on that, right? He, he, made, he made a movie that again, invited white people into a community that they had not ever been in. And because they had never been in it, they had judged those individuals. They had written so poorly about them in the media and dehumanized them, right? right? Yep. And he said, "No, no, let me show you the real story. I'm not saying that gang violence doesn't exist, but I'm going to tell you why it exists. Right. I'm not saying that crack addiction doesn't exist, but I'm also not going to let the government off of the ways in which they they literally poured crack into uh, poor black neighborhoods, right? We right. we, we got to talk about all of it because this the is a multi side
0: of thing. this story. Yeah, yeah, we man. need to see that. Everybody needs to see that." And I to. feel like that's what you do in your in your work. You know, I've seen several of your pieces. I, I, that's exactly what you do. You feel like growing up, like you said, growing up in the project was that that was the big, the big thing for you. That was the big, you know, entry point to to being able to tell these stories and and see life in a in a way.
1: Yeah, it it was man. Because like, I think for me, um, when you live in an environment like that and you you have human connections, right? And I mean, these were my brothers. These are my sisters. This is my aunt. This is my uncle. This is my mama you're talking about, right? Yeah. And to see those individuals who you know are literally working three or four jobs to survive, the corner boy out there at 15 who would rather be in school, but guess what? He got to help Mama and daddy pay the rent. Um, the young lady who is sort of trying to figure out who she is as a human being and figure out who she, and, and she finds herself getting caught up with some crazy dude who becomes a pit right there. I knew those people as human. And so then to see them portrayed as villains in the media, there's a cognitive dissonance there because you're like, wait a minute, who, who writing this? And I think even at 11 and 12, I understood this that there was somebody who was crafting these narratives who had never stepped foot in the neighborhood that I lived in. They had never met these people because if they had, they couldn't talk about them so poorly. They couldn't judge them the way right. yeah. that they were. And and so I knew early on, that's why Boys in the Hood at 11, is. I was 11 when that movie came out. Even then I knew that's the kind of movie that I want to make one day. Those are the kinds of stories that I have to tell because again he's reframing the narrative and he's humanizing right. individuals who not only have been dehumanized but whose story and voice has been stolen from them and used as weapons against them right right and so living in that and seeing that yeah i said this is this is what i want to do and that's why when you see my narratives, i'm telling i'm telling those stories about those people that we oftentimes overlook and not through the of of you know i i I want to make sure I say this right but like I oftentimes think that sometimes our white sort of filmmaking colleagues I'll call them they make these narratives and they sentimentalize everything Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: it's not human anymore everything is so sentimental and sad and oh it's so hard it's like no you know I laughed a lot when I was a kid right I had fun like we were out in the street playing football and basketball. And, you know, I wasn't really playing sports a lot, but in the library and we out in the, in the hood, like we, we found joy in those spaces. Right.
0: It's a whole different perspective. There's a whole different perspective and that's what we're giving, you know, when we tell our own stories. Exactly. Because it's, it's it's like somebody, you know, when they tell it, it's like somebody looking from the outside in, but when we tell it, it's us looking from the inside so we can tell it out. Yes, we know man. the story. You just said it. Like we had joy. We might not, you know, we may not have had a lot of money, but we we found joy in other things. We found joy along the way to make it happen. Yeah, exactly. we got into some trouble too. You know, exactly. this is our story with trouble. But this is why we got into trouble, from our perspective.
1: Yeah, man, and and it's also interesting because it's like, you know, oftentimes, and I see this a lot, we sometimes even judge ourselves when we're living in it. We blame ourselves because, again, we don't know our own history. We don't understand the history of redlining. We don't understand systemic oppression. We don't understand that, again, I was watching them last weekend. We don't understand that they're bringing us in and giving, literally putting a 20% APR on our loans so that these predatory loans, where we can't even pay our mortgages off. They, literally, uh, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but it's not until you get out of that and you can sort of have that, I guess, thousand foot look at it, where you realize, oh shit, this stuff is really by design, right? right. Yeah, Like they literally have created these systems and structures which are meant to imprison us and keep us bound. And they first start psychologically, obviously, because that's what you do. You, you have the people wage psychological warfare
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Right on themselves. I mean, I even think about I hope I'm not going on a tangent, but I even think about like, I'll never forget, I was listening to a uh, a message by Louis Farrakhan. He said something that I thought was interesting. He was like, got to remember something. This is how they work. They would take the man, right, the, 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 the strongest uh, uh, black man on the plantation, and they would dehumanize him publicly in front of his wife, in front of his kids, in front of the other slaves on the plantation. Because what that did is that said, hold up, if any of you do anything wrong, this thing will happen to you too. You also can be subject to this kind of brutality on your body, so you better listen. But also the psychological warfare part of it is now, this woman can't even look at her man the same. These kids can't even see their father the same. And so he flees because he can't even really feel like a, a protector and a provider in his own home because he can't even protect his own body. And that same sort of mentality has followed us for so long because they keep enacting the same kind of violence. No, it's not a public you know, lynching. No, it's not putting me in a place where I'm publicly flogged. But again, it's putting me in jail for having a couple of ounces of weed, yet now you know cannabis, <laughs> whatever we call it now, right. is yeah. a billion-dollar industry yeah, exactly. that I don't even get to participate in.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I right, go right. On and on. no, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And that's what I wanted to know. You know, that's that's exactly the perspective. What do you What do you have coming up? I mean, you you are an award winning filmmaker, and it's some incredible work. What do you What do you have mulling around in that head right now?
1: Yeah, man. <laughs> I, <right. laughs> uh so I have this uh anthology series that I shot last year at the beginning of the pandemic It's probably last April or May um called the pandemic chronicles Mm. and we had distribution through uh full spectrum features so we were in like over 100 spots virtually um for the month of February and then I just found out that that uh web series or anthology series I'll call it um Is going to be screening at another festival, but it's won, you know, a couple of awards and, you know, has been written about pretty favorably because it really just deals with the different ways that we're dealing with the pandemic, um, depending upon, you know, race, gender, class, all of that good stuff. Um, And then, so that's out in the world. um, And then I'm working right now on a new feature. It's been a decade since I shot Wolf. Wow. Um, and I've been I've been steadily working between, you know, doing shorts, doing an anthology series, web series, been having some success with that. But it's time for me to make a new feature. And I'm excited about this new feature um, because it's the story of a 12 year old kid. It's about everything we've been talking about who killed a cab driver when he was 12 years old um, and was sentenced to 40 years in prison, served 29 years of those and was released last year at the age of 40. So from 12 to 40, he was in the system and the story is he wrote a he wrote a manuscript which sort of details his life leading up to the murder um and the film I'm working on is about him you know so it's about this 12 year old kid who's really 10 year old kid because between 10 and 12 who's trying to sort of navigate life uh in the concrete jungle as I'll call it right really just trying to figure out who he is. He's trying to take care of his family. So he's, you know, he's out there selling his drugs and he's trying to care for his mom and keep her away from her abusive sort of husband. And, and then, you know, also he's he's sort of um, emulating his role models, which were other, you know, men who were out doing the same thing. And so this story really is about him and the, the plan is to shoot this this time next year. So I'm hoping around June, maybe May or June of 22. I shouldn't say hoping. We will be shooting this (laughs) in May or June of 22. You gotta call it out, yeah. That's right. So, And then I'm working on various other things. I'm gonna be shooting a music video soon. And um, I'm working with a a company to do a commercial uh, for them right now. I just had a meeting with them not too long ago. And so I have all these sort of irons in the fire, you know. I like that.
0: One of the hardest working men I know. You're always moving, (laughs) always moving. When you look back over your work, And I know you're not anywhere near done. Are you proud? Are you happy? Are you, what's your feeling?
1: I'm proud man. I, I mean, it's interesting because I have embraced something. And that is that first and foremost, the work will find an audience and the work will find an audience that it was made for. Yes. I am a person who believes that God um, really not only gave me the desire to tell stories, but that God leads and guides me in the storytelling that I do. Um, And I'm constantly listening to God's voice. Um, And I say that to say that not only am I really proud of the work, but I feel like I am on a mission with the work and that I am accomplishing what it is I'm supposed to do—not only physically as a filmmaker, but spiritually as a man, mm. right? As yeah, a human yeah, being—and—and—and yeah. and, and I believe that there's a connection between those. Do I feel fulfilled? Now, you get frustrated, right? I'm—I'm I'm gonna be very honest. It's very frustrating um, when you pour yourself into something and and it doesn't hit, right? And you know, you're trying to get the investors to help you with that next feature, and you're getting all the doors closed. I've been trying to get in TV for a long time and I keep hearing, oh, you know, we got to see more work from you, or we? And I'm like, I don't know how many more films I got to make to show you that I can direct television, right? But, but again, what I do, I realize this, that everything happens in its own timing. And so I'm not only proud, again, I feel like I'm doing the mission. And I also feel like if I continue to do what I'm doing, if I continue to make these films, if I continue um, to really not think about any end product, but really think about the story and think about the ways in which the, these narratives will affect the audience, that everything that I desire will come to me, right? I don't have to force it. I don't have to break down a door. They will come and knock on my door because I will have done what I am supposed to do. And that's what, I, that's always my advice. Do the work. Yeah, love the yeah. work. Fall in love with the art. Fall in love with... The message, fall in love with why you decided to be a filmmaker or an artist in the first place. And that love that you have for your art and and really the the sort of ways in which you listen to your creator to help you uh, create that art, that will draw to you what needs to be drawn to you. That doesn't mean you don't, you know, keep, keep working and trying to apply for this or that. I'm not saying you don't do that, but I also believe that you can't get all depressed and crazy about it. Right. It is what it is. I apply to your lab, you don't let me in on to the next. It's all good. Somebody will love the work. Right. Because that's why I'm doing it. Amen. Amen, man.
0: <laughs> well you you inspired me years ago. You still inspire me. I still see you. I see you. I'm here to support you. Um, wow, man. Please come back anytime. I gotta wrap it up because we're running out of time. <laughs> but a little <laughs> Baby, baby, where
1: you at?
0: That's my mom. Mom, be quiet. She wants to know where we can find you on social
1: media. Hold <laughs> on, mom. <laughs> hey, mama, how you doing? I know, man. Just calm down. <laughs> yeah, so you can hey, find mom. me on uh, <laughs> my website, ExodusFilmWorks.com. It has all my work there. I'm also obviously on all the social media platforms. I'm on IG. Yaki 80, Facebook, Yaki Filmmaker, Twitter, Yaki 80. Um, And then, you know, just a quick Google search. You can find a lot of my work as well. Find my Vimeo page. I have stuff. My feature, Wolf, is on Amazon Prime. Yes. So you can check that out. Definitely Um, check that out. Yeah. My web series, The Beginning and Ending of Everything, is on a platform called A Space for Creators. Uh, So you can go there and check it out. And uh, I'm constantly just putting out content. So just follow me on all those platforms and and ultimately you will find my work. I love it.
0: Everybody, please make sure you follow him. Yaki. Yaki.
1: (laughs) Here you go. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. It's all good. (laughs) Sorry,
0: (laughs) Yaki 80 on IG and Twitter. Go to Exodus Films. Check out where you can find all his work because he's doing it big, man. If you don't know him yet, you will know him in big, big ways. Thank you, brother. Please come back to the show anytime. The next project you have, come back and let us know what you got going. Please.
1: Yeah, brother. And I, I really appreciate you inviting me here. I appreciate your support over the years. And I will definitely come back.
0: You got it. Everybody, please make sure you download and share these episodes. We got great people on here with great stories, doing great things. Things you can find us at One Mike Night. One Mike Night is spelled O N E M I C N I T E. And you can follow me at Marcos Luis, M A R C O S L U I S. Go to the dot com for both. Find all the links to the social media. And we got a big surprise for you at One Mike Night coming up soon. I'll release the info. So please stick around. We got you. One Mike Night. Marcos Luis, I'm out.